Hello to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us today on episode seven of our MMM podcast, Music is Medicine, Ask the Expert. Before we get into our interview with our special guest, let me first introduce who we are. MMM stands for Music Men's Minds, a nonprofit organization that was founded seven years ago by Carol Rosenstein and her late husband, Erwin Rosenstein. The mission of Music Men's Minds is to serve seniors suffering from neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, stroke, traumatic brain injuries, and PTSD. The story begins with Carol. Her husband, Erwin, fell into the clutches of Parkinson's. Erwin's decline due to this neurodegenerative disease was steep, but one thing kept the joy alive through the late stages of Erwin's life, music. Erwin would light up at the piano, and it seemed as if the disease was gone, if only for a moment. This is when Carol realized music is medicine. Thus, Music Men's Minds was born. So for episode number seven, we have with us today, Dr. Corrine Tott. Uh, she is program director at the Academy for Neurological Music Therapy, assistant professor of the Faculty of Music at the University of Toronto, coordinator uh, of MMUS Applied Music and Health, associate professor at the ArtEZ School of Music, ArtEZ Conservatorium, and research associate at the Music and Health Research Collaboratory, MAHRC. Her work has included a diverse range of clinical populations, including stroke, Parkinson's disease, traumatic brain injury, cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, autism, and psychiatric disorders. She served on the exam committee for the uh, National Certification Board for Music Therapy as committee member, committee chair, and also as a, on the national board. She has served as president and vice president of the Midwestern Region of American Music Therapy Association, and she has numerous research publications in the area of music and motor, motor control. So with that, I will now turn the uh, interview over to Katie, who will um, interview Dr. Hurtout. Thank you so much, David, and thank you, Dr. Tout, for being here. Um, so your research has been in the area of neurologic music therapy. So could you tell us a little bit in basic terms, what does that entail and how did you get started in this field of research? Yeah, so neurologic music therapy is a little bit different than maybe some of the traditional thoughts about what music therapy is. Um, we really look at understanding what is happening in the brain when the brain is engaging in music. So what is happening in the brain when you hear music versus when you're actually playing music versus just perceiving um, elements of the music and being able to use that understanding of music in order to um, influence the brain uh, very specifically in order to practice um, training and retraining the brain specifically after injury. And so how did you get into this field of research? I know you mentioned you had been a musician before. Um, how did that transfer into this field? Yeah, so I think like many people um, who get started in this field, I was a um, serious musician and I wanted to find a way to take my music and help people. <laughs> and um, so I studied music therapy as my undergraduate um, degree. And I just felt like 
um, you know, music therapy is wonderful and, um, and there are all kinds of really neat things you see in the lines of um, thinking about it for wellness and psychosocial health. But um, my first job was actually in a neurorehabilitation center where I worked with dementia, where I worked with stroke and Parkinson's and traumatic brain injury. And I really thought there's got to be so much more that we can do with music other than just make people feel happy and, and better. <laughs> um, and so um, I started doing quite a bit of work with the physical therapist, the occupational therapist, the speech therapist, and realized that we didn't understand enough yet in order to get consistent outcomes in our applications of music. And so that kind of led me to go into my master's and later my PhD to really just start trying to answer some of those questions about what is happening in the brain when it engages in music and why why does music work um, for so many different functions? And then how can we find consistent ways to apply that to populations so that it's not just a, a guessing game on that day of whether or not we'll be able to touch somebody with music, but what do we really know about how music can consistently influence the brain and help somebody's brain, even when they have a degenerative disorder or even after they've had a major disability such as a stroke or a brain injury. Absolutely. So seeing all this research that you've done and having seen the benefits, why do you think that there are still some roadblocks to applying these techniques in a healthcare setting? Yeah, I think actually um, <laughs> it's interesting. The problem seems to be more so, well, there are a couple of things I see, but right now the problem is more so getting enough people trained to be able to work in the specific model of, of neurologic music therapy and having them feel comfortable in that training in order to apply it to um, directly to clients. And so a big part of what I do is David and his long list of, of big words that he had to pronounce, um, but a big part of what I do is taking the research and disseminating that information to clinicians who will be able to actually apply that um, and not just music therapists, but physical therapists, speech therapists, occupational therapists, neuropsychologists, um, so that we can actually get that um, the science into the hands of the people who can actually use it with with the the people who need it most. So, um, so I think right now it's a big training process and just making neurologic music therapy become a household name where people really know how powerful it can be and and how um, much of an effect it can have on um, on these populations. I think that um, music has often been in healthcare settings has often been considered kind of an adjunctive component to traditional treatment programs. Um, we all know what physical therapy is. Most of us have probably experienced at some point experienced it in some point in time. Um, but when somebody recommends that you actually use music in your rehabilitation process or in your um, in your medical treatment, it's a little bit of an, a foreign concept for many of us. Music is something that we think about. We listen to when we're in the car, we listen to, we go to concerts because it helps us relax or it's it's interesting and stimulating for our brain, but they don't think about it as the first thing to maybe help them retrain their walking after a stroke. Although we know with the research that it's 
um, it's been identified, rhythmic auditory stimulation has been identified as best practice by the Canadian Stroke Foundation. Um, it's been identified as best practice by the Veteran Affairs um, and the Department of Defense in the U.S. And so it's it's we know that it works, but it's not yet common language for people. Um, so I think with a lot of education, which we are really trying to do, we've trained over 5,000 um, neurologic music therapists in uh, 68 different countries now. And so we're really trying to get the word out there so that this can be used and can reach the people, like I said, that need it most. Fantastic. What would you recommend to someone who's looking to get trained in this field or someone who's looking to support the effort of music therapy in this neurological biomedical setting? Yeah, I think um, first you need to have a, a degree in an area that's that like that within your scope of practice, you can actually use the information. And so I named some of the professionals that take the training. Um, we also have, you know, music teachers and um, even caregivers who want to have a better understanding of how they can use music. So I think first you need to you come from a place where, where you'll be able to use the content. And then the, the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy has a, has a standardized training program. And, um, and we teach all of the techniques that have the neurologic music therapy techniques that have been developed from the research, both basic science and clinical research that's been done to understand, like I said, how we can have consistent results with these interventions. And so um, we do those trainings nine to 10 times a year all over the world. So um, we have usually 80 to 150 people in each one. So, so look on the website, www.nmtacademy.co. And that is a great place to read more about how you can get trained. Um, it's a great place to go and read more about the research that's being done, the research that's been done in the past, things that are hot off the press right now, um, just to really give you an idea of kind of the advances that are be being made in this area. Fantastic. I love that you have immersed yourself in this world and that you are dedicated to what some people might consider a very niche field that has such extraordinary benefits. What would you consider to be the thing that makes music different from other things that are maybe mentally stimulating, like a puzzle? Or what, what makes music something that is more engaging, especially for people with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or these neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah, I think one thing um, about music is it has so many layers of information and there's the aesthetic qualities. Um, and so we can really find music that people can relate relate to on so many different levels. And, and also it has the ability to be shaped in a way that can make it you know, effective for whatever the function is that you want to work on. So um, I have some great, video examples which won't come across over um, over a podcast, but just to explain an example of maybe a respiratory patient who's in the hospital and they're using the spirometer to work on um, respiratory function and, and increasing their strength. 
And then the neurologic music therapist comes in and gives them a melodica, which is an instrument that looks a little bit like a piano and you blow into a tube and sound comes out. And so they can actually make their own music. The therapist can actually play a song on the melodica so that the, the client doesn't even need any background musical training or anything to do this. But just that creating that musical product is such a reward for them. And I would say if it was me in that position, I would much prefer to play a musical instrument to work on my respiratory function than to blow in a tube and make balls go up in the air. So I think there's a, a certain motivation and excitement that comes from um, music making and knowing that that can actually be contributing to your um, your health as well as is motivating for people. When you were a musician, did you ever notice music having an effect on you and your sense of well-being? Or was your inspiration to go into this field more driven by seeing how music could be helpful for other people? Yeah, I that's always a big question. Why did you go into this field? Like, what was your, some people will say, what was your issue that made you go into this field? And I think it was really more a desire to help other people. Like I loved music so much. It was such a big part of my life um, from singing in choirs and being in musical theater, um, playing the piano. It was, it was just such a, it brought so much joy to me, but I, I never experienced anything different because it was always a part of my life, but I just have always loved being able to share that with, with others. Um, so this just seemed like the right mixture of, um, yeah, of being able to use music and also using it in a really functional way to help other people. That's wonderful. That's so beautiful. How has the professional landscape changed since you started in the field? What sort of knowledge gaps have we filled in that maybe weren't filled in when you started working in the field? And what are the main things that we still have yet to empirically show with our research? Yeah, so, um, I mean, when I started in the field, neurologic music therapy didn't exist. And so, um, like I said, music was music therapy was very much a social science model of working with clients on wellness and um, and more psychosocial type of goals. And um, we've really seen with advances in neuroscience and being able to put people in brain scanners and see what's actually happening in the brain when um, when music is added and when a musical task is added, it's really just increased our knowledge base and. Uh, created the opportunity to yeah understand that more. And so um, with, I, I'd say in the last 25 years, that has just, um, it's, yeah, it's increased so much that it's really allowed us to create these very effective uh, techniques that can consistently create positive um, functional outcomes for clients. We consider music to be somewhat of a social activity. And so how has the pandemic changed the way that we maybe use music to tackle some of these symptoms? I know that Music Men's Minds, we had music support groups. And so a lot of the changes with the pandemic and isolating had 
a very drastic impact on the work that we were able to do. So I'm curious in your work world, how did the pandemic shift the landscape? Yeah, um, since my work world kind of involves three different areas because I, I am involved in the research and in that area, it really meant taking a lot of what we were doing and trying to think of, okay, how can we look at this from a new perspective um, and bringing in the whole telehealth piece. And so um, we immediately did a, a telehealth um, study with uh, looking at um, looking at what were therapists doing with telehealth? Were they able to implement the NMT techniques? So it really uh, shifted our focus of research and we had to also think of creative ways to collect data virtually. And so how could we how could we use functional measurements um, when somebody was sitting in their living room and you were sitting in your baby bedroom at home trying to um, either do a therapy session or carry out a clinical protocol for a research study. So we really had to rethink um, a lot of that. And through that, we did, a, we did a couple of survey studies looking at like the success of, of therapists being able to do this. And we saw that therapists um, were coming up with creative, innovative ways to make it work, but they needed uh, they also needed support systems. So it wasn't just the, the clients that we needed to reach, but it was also the therapists needed supports in order to well, stay motivated, in order to know, like to share ideas and know how to um, create effective therapy. And so um, I also started uh, what we call our Neurologic Music Therapy Global Support Meetings. And we started them weekly and people would come and we we had discussions about, okay, what's the best in the beginning, you know, what's the best microphone to use and what's the best video camera to use. And then from there, okay, how are you effectively, um, you know, we can't all sing at the same time. So how are you effectively creating a choir without being able to sing together? And then looking for apps that worked well for creating opportunities for that. Um, so, so the second part of it was like just reaching out to the, the clinicians. And then the third part was, you know, the clients, <laughs> which um, that, I mean, I spent not, like numerous hours on, and I'm sure that you've experienced that as well, but on, on phone calls, trying to help somebody figure out how to put Zoom on their computer and how to, um, okay, how do you mute yourself? How do you put your camera on? And making them feel comfortable and empowered enough that they could they would come and actually join groups. Um, we were doing quite a few community outreach groups uh, through our our music applied music and health program here at the university, and so we um, we took those groups and turned them virtual and did all this training to help feel, people feel comfortable getting online, and then we realized that it was great, they were still getting like the treatment, but there was a huge social aspect that was missing. People like coming to a group, they like talking to their peers, they would, because they always check in on each other and you weren't here last week, is everything okay? You know, how are things going? So there's just such a huge social component of all of that that was missing. And so we started adding a social time. So before groups would start, we, we'd come in 15 or 30 minutes early, say, bring your cup of coffee and let's just sit and chat. And it was so 
um, and there was no music during that time. It was really just that that social component that, that made people feel more comfortable sitting in their living room and singing or sitting in their living room and doing movements and exercises. Um, but we had to, we really had to kind of grow into, okay, how does this new life, this new virtual world look and how can we still make people feel connected to reality in some way? So it was a very um, interesting experience that I I have to say I I feel um, well, just very excited about what we were able to accomplish and and we're still not completely out of it. So now we're you know we're going back in person, but we still have people who are more comfortable being virtual, um, and so we're we're keeping those same social supports for them. We're trying to keep those structures and simulate reality as much as we can. So. Right. Did you notice differences in your client's senses of well-being and just the overall environment when you did incorporate that social aspect too? Oh, very much so. Um, very much so. They came with, we, um, we, I do these groups with my students. And so we thought, well, we should have some questions lined up and we should have some idea of what's going to happen in that 30 minutes of social time if, if it needs structure. It needed no structure. People came with, like, they wanted to talk about a hike they went on or a new recipe they tried or having a, a Zoom meeting with their family because now they know how to use it. And it was, it, they really just kind of took it away. And a lot of them knew each other quite well. And so it, it, it took very little, um, it took very little outside of just providing that um, that platform for them to have that social time. <laughs> yeah. And are these clients coming from different musical backgrounds? Or are they all at different levels? Or are they all at a very beginner level? What's the sort of breakdown? Yeah, they, they all come from very different musical backgrounds. Um, our virtual groups that we did were primarily with elderly um, who maybe had Parkinson's stroke. We did a lot of dementia groups. We did um, yeah, traumatic brain injury. We, we did kind of a, a range, but it was primarily an older population um, that, we were, that we were reaching out to. So it was really exciting that they were on board. Um, yeah. Do you notice any difference in the benefits for people with a more of a music background or people with less of a music background, or do you find that the benefits are pretty standard no matter where you're coming from? Yeah, I mean, the research is really done both with, um, with musicians and non-musicians and just really understanding, obviously a musician is gonna have a little bit different, um, uh, they're gonna have different pathways in their brain that are, that are more developed than maybe the non-musician, but, um, our research really looks at just in general, like when you engage in singing, what areas of your brain are activated and how can we use that knowledge to work with someone who maybe can't speak and help them access maybe language through singing. Um, so, so everybody has that ability. It's just, you know, how you, you don't have to be a musician to benefit from neurologic music therapy. <laughs> So out of curiosity, what parts of the brain are activated when you start to sing? Well, a lot of the same areas that are activated for speech, because when we sing, we are articulating the words we have. Um, so we have a lot of speech areas activated, but then we also have this 
um, this what we call prosody or this um, inflection component of our speech. And when we sing, obviously, we also have a lot of pitch. And so that's using more of the right hemisphere of your brain versus um, when we speak, it's much, much more of a left hemisphere function. So, um, so actually singing can be a great way to help somebody with rehabilitation of their speech when they're having a hard time accessing it through those typical left hemisphere pathways. We bring in that, that right hemisphere and singing, and maybe instead of singing their favorite song, we sing um, I have to go to the bathroom or something very functional that they might need to tell somebody. And we're able to retrain those pathways in order to help them be able to um, use that language again. So, yeah. Do you personally see music as more of an adjunctive treatment or do you think that with progress, we can get to a place where music therapy is a viable standalone treatment? Um, well, I, I think that both are important, actually. I think, I mean, right now, um, music is often used as an adjunctive treatment, and that's not necessarily a negative thing. Um, I think right now we already also are to the point where neuro neurologic music therapy is a standalone treatment. It is, it, it can address sensory motor functions, it can address cognition, you know, attention and memory and, and um, executive function. And it also can address many areas of speech and language from uh, stuttering to motor control to um, expressive language uh, uh, deficits, whether it's from aphasia or um, lack of development of speech. So, so there's already the research is there um, and it's very, very substantiated the effects of music. Um, recently, the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy was is recognized or was recognized as an affiliate um, organization of the, um, the World Federation for Neurologic Rehabilitation. So it's not unknown. It's, it's um, endorsed by, uh, by the people it needs to be in that need to have this information in their hands. So, um, so I think you'll continue to hear more about neurologic music therapy being integrated into facilities. So a final question that I have is, if you had a caregiver who came up to you and asked, how do I incorporate music therapy in the home? Where do I start? What would you recommend to them? Um, I would recommend to them to, if they can, if they have the resources, to get a neurologic music therapist to help them. Because it's not as easy as just saying, this is what you should do with music. It's very much about um, thinking about the specific what what is the specific like need that your that maybe your loved one has. Are you having a really hard time when you're trying to do um, caregiving like like activities of daily living where you're maybe washing them or bathing them or getting getting them dressed? Do they get agitated? Um, maybe that's a good time to sing familiar songs that help kind of redirect their attention and, and create a positive space for them. Um, or is it they're having difficulties with their memory for something? And maybe you come up with a fun song that helps them remember their address or their phone number or a piece of information they need to recall. Um, or maybe they just need to engage in like 
fun, familiar things. And maybe that's sitting down with them and singing some fun, familiar songs to um, create just a positive experience for them. So, so it's really, it varies depending on what, what you're trying to accomplish. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. I want to ask David really quickly if there's any questions that you have for Dr. Tout before we wrap up our interview. Sure, I have one. Uh, you mentioned that you have programs all across the globe. Have you found any significant regional or cultural differences or differences in types of music that, that are more successful than others in your studies? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. Um, we really focus a lot, not on like necessarily the type of music, but the elements of music. And so if you think about music, regardless of the, um, of the culture or all music has rhythm, all music has pitch, all music has harmonies, they might be different and what's familiar to you might, might be different. Um, so we really research those independent elements of music and how those, like the perceptual properties of music can influence um, the brain. But of course, if I'm going in and turning those, that research into like clinical applications with a client, I'm going to think about, okay, what kind of music do they relate to? What kind of music do they like? If I'm trying to spark positive memories um, through the music, then I'm going to choose music that is going to have memories for them that they're familiar with and that that is in a, a cultural context that is appropriate for them. So um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a huge consideration. Good question. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Music is Medicine, Ask the Expert. You have shared amazing research findings and we're so grateful that you were able to come on today and share your knowledge with us. We can't wait to hear more about your amazing work in the future. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about Music Men's Minds, please visit our website at www.musicmensminds.org. If you didn't know, Music Men's Minds is a nonprofit organization based in West LA, serving seniors with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, PTSD, stroke, and traumatic brain injuries by using music to bring these seniors healing and joy. If this is a cause that you would like to support, please consider donating to Music Men's Minds. We accept donations through our website, again, www.musicmensfinds.org. Thank you again to Dr. Tout for joining us today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Katie. <laughs>